This is an ABC podcast. On ABC Grandstand Digital, this is more than just a game. Yes, welcome to More Than Just a Game, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. It's Paul Roach with you here. Joining me today for this big show we've got coming up is David Gill. G'day to you, Bear. How's things? Fantastic to be here, Roachie. That's good. As uh, always. Uh, yeah, I was just going to suggest that very thing. And Simon Johnson charging in after a spell after the, at the last show. How are you? Great to be back. Feeling refreshed, reinvigorated. Good to go. And the, the final member of the panel, Stephen Riley, he's just flat out gone AWOL. I didn't hear from him at all. Standard. Come on, Riles. He's got to pick up his game, doesn't he? <laughs> did see him WhatsApping on that uh, Premier League group reading, so he is alive. Got to get his priorities right. alive. Coming up, what exactly is the spirit of the game, and can it take precedence over the laws of the game? There's been a few transgressions of spirit, quote-unquote, lately, so we'll talk to the head of the law school at the University of Melbourne about these. We'll also look at sport as government policy with a special post-budget analysis. Uh, check the numbers underpinning the AFL and NRL as those two seasons get going. And we'll also talk lightsaber dueling, just for something completely different. Of course, we'll wrap it up with Red Card, Yellow Card, where we have a bit of fun at the expense of sports people. And it must be said, this show, they're wags around the world. Stay tuned for that. We'd love you to get in touch or just follow us on Twitter at MTJAG Grandstand. And or subscribe to the show on iTunes. But for now, let's get into the next edition of More Than Just a Game. More Than Just a Game on ABC Grandstand Digital. Well, it's kind of appropriate that with the David Warner and Steve Smith coming back in from the cold, we find ourselves turning our attention to the spirit of the game. What with there being a few examples of it being called into question of late... Uh, funnily enough, the first example is one in cricket itself, in the IPL, no less, which saw the use of the dreaded mancad. Mancad, indeed. It's a, a topic dear to my heart. It's so dear to my heart, Roachy, that I actually wrote a thesis on this. Fair <laughs> dinkum, as part of my cricket and the law subject, as part of my law degree in 1995, I wrote a... Uh, I seem to recall I got an OK mark in that too, David. Cricket and the law. Cricket and law. It was such a subject. I think you may have got a distinction. It was one of those um, courses you did to kind of pad your average, maybe, a little yeah, bit? Quite, quite possibly. No pun intended. I think uh, <laughs> on that note, though, Rochi, we should introduce our, uh, our special guest. Oh, thank you for that throw. Yes, uh, so joining us uh, to help navigate the line between the letter and the spirit of the law is Jack Anderson, who is the Director of Studies in Sports Law at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Jack. Uh, thanks, and thanks for having me on, and I'm um, interested in the cricket and the law, and must follow up on that. Well, yeah, what, tell, us, tell us some more, Jono, what, what, to take us through it. Well, have, you, have you got the dot matrix printer print out sadly, there? I think it was just, yeah, printers had been invented in those days, so it wasn't quite a handwritten assignment. But um, I think my thesis was that, um, you know, in many sports, conduct can be lawful, so it doesn't um, breach the sports rules, but is it actually against the spirit of the game? And looked through the history of uh, Vinu Mancad. I think I wrote about, was it 10,000 words? And might have... Well, I think 10,000 is a slight exaggeration. I actually had my essay with me. and I, You did one too? Yes, and I had the word count on the front page for some reason, 3,643. Oh, okay. Mine might have been 5,000. So did you do the same course, Gilly? We did the same. We studied hard together. Yep. We did indeed. Jack, as, as someone, we'll come back to these examples of transgression of sport. As someone who is uh, running, as I understand it, an eSports and the law course, what do you make of this subject and these guys' fine efforts to uh, come up with some uh, discussions around cricket and the law? Yeah, I'm glad that we're carrying on such a great tradition of in-depth research in sports law. I'm absolutely delighted with that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we, we, we offer a number of courses at the 
the Melbourne Law School and a kind of a sports law program. And funny enough, this year the most uh, popular one is esports on the law. Um, because of the legal issues and also because of the economics in it. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how sport has evolved um, and we see it all the time with esports. And, and on that, I, I did have a look at the, the course blurb and it's, I think the, the point that the blurb makes, or one of the points is that with the rapid rise of esports from you know, the lounge room to literally stadia, um, you, the suggestion is that governance and f- for, for both the, not just the, the sport inverted commas, but also the players and the sponsors and so forth need to catch up. And that's sort of something that's happened with rapidly evolving sports over time. Is it, have I understood that correctly? Yeah, I mean, it's such an unusual governance model. It's um, A lot of it is to do with the publishers of the games and their IP and all that kind of stuff. So it's not a sport as we traditionally understand it, you know. Um, not that they care either way whether it is or not, as far as they're concerned as an industry. The, the funny uh, thing about it is the International Olympic Committee are really chasing esports. They mm. really want us to be in the games, you know, uh, for various reasons, primarily because it's big in Asia and it's a good demographic for them. Um, so that does shows you where it's going uh, in terms of its development and the esports industry itself doesn't care whether a traditional sport likes it or not they just do their thing and it's a billion dollar industry i'll spare you my thoughts on esports joining the olympics jack we've covered that extensively i've covered extensively (laughs) in past shows bit of a bit of a traditionalist but listen let's let's move on to that man cat incident that uh, we referred to uh, where um ashwin uh, was bowling and got Joss Butler out at the, the non-striker's end. Obviously, the convention is to warn the batsman, but it's not actually required. So I dragged out the law. If the non-striker is out of his or her ground from the moment the ball comes into play to the instant when the bowler would normally have been expected to release the ball, the bowler is permitted to attempt to run him or her out. Yeah. Is, is that fair enough? Yeah, fair enough. Look, the thing about this is it's like all sports. There is this strict letter of the regulations and then there's the spirit of the game. And look, let's talk, if we want to talk about cricket and this, we have to go back to the underarm bowling stuff. Mm. You know, we, we really do. So at the time, that was not disallowed, if you know that. You could mm. do it, mm. but was it against the spirit of the game? And it clearly was. And then they changed the rules. But it's the same thing with this, you know, and the ICC have come out and, uh, you know, said the rule is there, is there for a particular reason. Whether you think it's against the spirit of the game is, you know, uh, a kind of a more distant question. But, you know, the, this, this, this idea is very interesting because right at the top there, you mentioned the ball tampering and we're one year mm. on. Mm-hmm. The key offence that the three guys were charged with was not the ball tampering thing. It was bringing the sport into disrepute. Mm -hmm. And the whole basis of that is it was contrary to the spirit of cricket. That's in the rule. What does the contrary to the spirit of cricket mean? Mm. And is that enough to justify a year and a nine-month ban? Now, it was in that case. So it just shows you from something that is, is it legal or is it not, you know, with a, a bowler, a non-bowler, whatever, it suddenly goes to, oh, my God, we're facing a year ban based on breaching the spirit of the game. That becomes interesting. And and I guess um, the way a particular situation is analysed and reacted to depends a lot on the culture of the country in which it happens because the ball tampering incident in South Africa was by no means the first example of ball tampering no. in, in no. recent times in cricket. But do you think it reflected something about Australian culture that the reaction here was so extreme and so strong compared to what happened maybe in you know with Pakistani players or South African players? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. First of all, it was, you know, in some ways, if you look at it, it was disproportionate, you know, because the International Cricket Council's ban was, you know, a day or a fine or something. Mm. And suddenly then the Australian players were facing 12 to nine months, which they accepted, of course. But, the, you know, I've talked to a good few people about that. I mean, in one context, you're seeing as and if you go back to that week, which was an extraordinary week, really, you know, you had sponsors pulling out, you had all sorts of pressures on. Do you see it in that sense or do you see it that, oh, no, this was a national disgrace, hmm. therefore, you know, so or is it all together? You know, it's for me, it was the longest ban I've ever seen for a bringing the sport into dispute on those grounds, you know. So I think it was a national kind of a, an issue like that. But it all hangs on what your definition of contrary to the spirit of sport is. So that's that's why it's interesting. And on that note, and still on cricket, because the spirit is mentioned in the, in the preamble to the rules, really, but yeah. they're not in the rules themselves. And and the MCC, as I understand it, has said, has said look, this, this man-cat incident was not in the spirit. But uh, as you say, Jack, I think they've also established that it is within the rules. Well, within the rules. So there you are. So, you know, you can go back to, was it Gilchrist in the 2003 World Cup where he walks or, you know, those mm. kind of issues. You know, what's in the spirit or, of the game is very much dependent on the team, dependent on the nation, dependent on your values uh, sporting-wise, you know. And, 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 and it's a difficult one because it can go up and down dependent on various factors. Do you think, um, Jack, I mean, part of this, I guess when you're talking about spirit of the game, you're talking about ethical behavior and what is appropriate ethical or uh, normative behavior. Um, yeah. and, and in those circumstances, I think David's point before about looking at the Australian culture and looking at what the Australian ethical culture is, do you think there's a, a movement at the moment, not just in sport, but you see it in business? Um, we saw it through the Banking Royal Commission yeah. recently, where it's not just looking at whether or not sportsmen or in the Banking Royal Commission case, corporations... Um, behaved within the letter of the law, but whether or not um, they behaved ethically. Do you think there's a real movement um, towards that? And that's probably impacted the way um, these issues have been reacted to. Yeah, I think it is. You know, when we saw uh, with Cricket Australia, one of the first kind of reforms was to get the ethics centre to have a look into governance and all that, which is very different and very um, uh, interesting. I always see it uh, as well in terms of doping. So one of the key tenets of the World Anti-Doping Code is contrary to the spirit of, of sport, which is a big thing as well. And, and you contrast that to the kind of legalities of it. So in doping, if a substance is on the prohibited list, it's banned, right? And that's mm -hmm. the straightforward. But if it's not on the prohibited list, in the sense that no one's thought about this as a performance-enhancing mm -hmm. drug, can you take it? Hmm. Okay? Now, legally, you can. But ethically, that's wrong. It's contrary to the spirit. But where do you draw the line? Now, you know, and we can see, we've seen it in certain sports where the anecdotal evidence is, and I'm not going to get you in trouble about this, but the anecdotal <laughs> evidence is that certain um, teams, maybe even individuals, are using things that the testers haven't caught up with yet. You know, so, so the, you know, there's a contrary to the spirit of sport, but there's actually what goes on, you know. And, and maybe we can segue from there to the recent... Um Nick Kyrgios mm. underarm underarm oh, yeah. serve because I was interested uh, interested to see an interview with Peter Fitzsimons who you know I would classify as a little bit of a, a moral pontificator who yeah. certainly yeah, a yeah. little bit he, he certainly you know spends quite a bit of time putting people down for behaving in a way that he deems to be um, inappropriate and he has very strong views and he's always right um, but they asked him about yeah. Nick Kyrgios and he said no problem it's within the rules of the game I don't see a problem I play tennis myself and I do it all the time and I, <laughs> so Peter does it it's okay yeah. 
but I, yeah, I found that I found that difficult to reconcile with with his with his general um, personality and um, usual yeah. usual opinions. But yeah, look. but look, he's he, look in a way he's right, of course. But if you're his opponent and he starts doing this, are you going? Is this guy doing it to get an advantage, or is he is he disrespecting me? You know. So there's kind of those written conventions, unwritten conventions in sport. Baseball is full of them, you know, with the pitcher and the batter. There's certain things you can do, you know, that is seen as disrespectful. Curious doesn't care. Because, you know, so that's the bottom line for him. He doesn't care. It's in the rules. Off you go. And whether that says more about him than the spirit of the game, that's a question for debate. Whereas Rafael Nadal, who faced one of these underarm, uh, I was about to say deliveries, <laughs> underarm serves, uh, after the match said that uh, accused Kyrgios effectively of lacking respect for the public, the rival and towards himself. And I think brackets and the game. But it's, a, you know, there's an old statesman, as it were, these days of the game, a, you know, keeper of the flame, whereas he's this young up and coming person with, with no, very little respect for, for the game. And I don't mean that in a yeah, negative no, no, kind of way. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I mean, the irony, of course, is that, that, that Kyrgios actually didn't get that serve in and yeah. uh, he went on to win the match in quite spectacular fashion, actually. Watch the, watch the last two minutes of that, uh, that tie break. But Federer, on the other hand, said, quote, there's no shame in trying it. Right. Well, Michael, yeah. Michael Chang was the famous exponent of it back in 1989, I think it was. He was cramping yeah. up in the French Open, fifth French set. Open, he yeah, was up yeah. against Ivan Lendl. And it was actually regarded as a fantastic tactic. You know, he was a smaller yeah. guy, a lot faster. And it was probably, you know, sharp, sharp practice, but uh, ended up working well for him. Yeah, the, the the difficulty becomes where there's a kind of a blurred line. So in soccer and in, in football, you know, if an opponent is injured, do you kick the ball out mm-hmm. so that they can get treated? You know, but if you're attacking, would you do it? Do you leave it to the referee? What's what's the convention? What's the rules? So that's that's <laughs> yeah, where it becomes and, tricky. And that know? one got very blurred because I think Italy, um, most notably, would uh, players would suddenly get injuries when the mm. opponents were anywhere near their goals, and then yeah. get upset if if they didn't kick the ball out. So yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where it becomes difficult. So something that is seen as good sportsmanship can get, you know, corrupted in that. So that, but look, they're just examples of it. And look, there's, you know, sport is full of these kind of unwritten rules. Mm. You know, uh, if you see cycling, one yeah. of the big things is not to attack the leader. If the leader gets a puncture or slips a chain, you're not supposed to attack the leader. Um, even though it may be a tactical chain slip, if you know what I mean. So, so those <laughs> those kind of things occur all the time, you know. And uh, obviously, there's the issue with match play golf as well, whether you you know grant the tap in or not. Indeed, well, Sergio Garcia. Well, and speaking, speaking of golf, mm. going you two, I, I well, got we, no time for golf, but we, apparently you like it. We were quite fascinated by it on the weekend. So another example where um, I think Matt, uh, Sergio Garcia missed his first part and then had a little tap in. And the convention, of course, is that you give a, a short putt, but before he had uh, Kucha had a chance to give that short putt, Sergio had tried to tap in his little short putt and had missed it. And Sergio threw a, a massive Spanish tantrum after that, didn't he? And then suggested uh, on the next tee to Matt Kucha that um, Kucha may want to think about conceding in that hole, and Matt Kucha said he didn't particularly like that idea. They were pretty much making up the rules for themselves as they went along. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But you know, Sergio obviously comes from a, you know a very strong European Ryder Cup match play background, you know, and that you know those kind of things are kind of historic in the Ryder Cup. It mm. goes back to there was a famous incident with Jack Nicklaus and um, who conceded a putt so to give Europe a draw way back when. And um, the irony is Spanish players and one of my heroes was Seve Balsteras growing up. 
but he was a vicious competitor <laughs> and he'd mm. give you nothing, you mm. know, absolutely nothing in the Ryder Cup. So, look, there, there are actually certain rules around that, um, convention and rules, but uh, that just seems to be a bit of a misunderstanding. The, the US president probably observes neither convention nor rules, uh. judging by a recent uh, book that's been released about his ability to cheat on a golf course. Yes. Oh, that so it's a, yeah, it's a new book out by former Sports Illustrated columnist Rick Riley. I wonder if he's any relation to our Stephen or indeed his brother Matt. Those Rileys well, love well, to write a book, don't well they? Lost cousin. Um, now it's called Commander in Cheat: How Golf Explains Trump. Now, Jono, this is how you get me into golf, mate. Uh, and I love that Riley quotes the players who accuse Trump, his caddy, and the Secret Service of regularly moving his golf balls out of difficult lives. <laughs> <laughs> He'd never do that. Says Riley, I don't know much about politics, but I know golf, and it really offended me, not as a voter or as a citizen, just as a golfer. So, so many great examples, but the, the best one for me was the fact that um, President Trump at 2.8 has a better, better handicap than the Golden Bear, Jack Nicholas <laughs> at 3.6, who has 18 majors. And they're probably the same age or similar age. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear. Look, we could yeah. go on, Jack, but uh, really appreciate you joining us to discuss the spirit of the game and where the line between the law and ethics and convention lies. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, so the now annual Port Adelaide trip to China for premiership points in the AFL, usually with St Kilda in tow, it, uh, it seems to me, may be the cause of some mirth in footy circles, but there's actually a serious side of the off-field goings-on and that's in the business push that comes in behind it. Now, uh, crowds are questionable. Uh, they're kept away, depending on who you believe. Um, interesting press release uh, from uh, the government. AF headed, AFL gives Aussie businesses a free kick to China. I would have thought the free kick is to Australia, not to China. But anyway, um, what's the placement of a preposition between friends? So, um, look, it's all about showcasing uh, firsthand our produce to the, to the Chinese market. It's a joint initiative between Austrade, the AFL, and indeed the Port Adelaide Football Club. So Port Adelaide are in, in a JV, a joint venture with the AFL. Uh, and the Minister for Trade, Tourism and Investment, Simon Birmingham, said, called this the Festival of Australia. Love that. It'll span 10 cities over two weeks. What a junket. Stretch <laughs> that Stretch is brilliant. Stretching how do, how do we get a gig on that? <laughs> well, you have produce or some sort of good or service okay. that you wish to export yep. or, or promote to the Chinese market. I think that's the bottom line. Although, to, to Simon's point, they, one of the, the, the key things that they're promoting is premium Australian food and beverages. Oh, yes. I could bring some expertise. <laughs> <laughs> not, not perhaps in healthcare, culture, tourism, sports, education, financial services, not so business much, and yeah, innovation. Not so much, yeah, not so exactly. Um, so, yeah, culminates in Shanghai. I have to go into through all sorts of different, uh, different uh, cities. Uh, it costs a few, Bob. Uh, $250,000 of government money in addition to Tourism Australia's $400,000, and that's just, for, that's just for the 2019 edition. Uh, and, of course, Koshy's involved, being president of the Port Adelaide Football Club. Uh, I encourage all businesses with a focus on China and all footy supporters, just that sort of rules no one out, to be there. With the announcement of this Festival Australia, all roads lead to Shanghai. I can't wait. On your it's, it's not a bad idea. I mean, quote you get like 0.5% of the population of China interested in AFL and... Yeah, I mean, it's more people than watch the um, the grand final. Yeah, probably. Uh, I've run out of fingers to calculate the zeros. And look, still on the finance, so government involvement in sport. Uh, of course, we had the federal budget not that long ago. Uh, so, Sports Australia Chair John Wiley was pleased to be able to welcome three hundred eighty-five million dollars of government funding, federal government funding for sport and physical activity. 
declaring it one of the biggest funding injections in years. In Getting sport. all of our kids running around a little bit more at school. Yeah, exactly. So, well, this indeed was part of it. So there's this National Sporting Schools Program, uh, which apparently has reached about 85% of schools in the country. And in the four years it's been up and running, about 7,100 schools. Um, spent about 40 million bucks already. There's another 20 million bucks, I think, going into it. But yeah, it's all about getting the kids off the couch and uh, indeed turning active kids into active adults. Apparently, there's. Is this related to Australia Sports Diplomacy 2030, or is that a completely separate initiative? Wow, no, so... I, I did see 2030 in this press release. Um, the, the, tw- the 2030 reference I saw was that uh, Sport Australia's vision is for Australia to become the world's most active. Sporting nation. Okay, different. Australia um, Sports Diplomacy 2030 is all about um, furthering Australian diplomatic efforts through the use of sport, which mm. I think is so brilliantly, uniquely Australian. China, China has made in China 2025, which is all about indigenous technology and being able to you know, produce things like microchips and whatever. <laughs> we have sport. We've got rugby. So part of that was, I, I read strengths. that as well. Aren't we going to help the Indonesians, no, the Philippines, Philippines with, their, with, their rug, with, and with their rugby team? Yes. I think that's right. But I think it's just optimistic that the Morrison government is doing anything where um, what, what they're promising now will be around in uh, 2030. They've just got no prospects of, of anyone still being around. <laughs> well, I think, uh, uh, sure, but I think that Sports Australia uh, is also involved. In so they they might be around a little bit more than any potential uh, change of government. Um, yeah, the diplomatic thing's interesting. I mean, Frank Lowy was big on that angle when um, he sort of took the reins effectively of, of, of soccer in this country. He saw that at our participation in the, the World Cup as a, as a way of projecting Australia in not just sporting ways, but in business ways uh, in the world. But um, as I say, Johnny, you've got to, got to play to your strengths. You do. I'll get on board. <laughs> you, should, you should do. Please do. Alrighty, on to the shootout around the world in eight or so minutes. Uh, I was interested to see a report uh, with the main winter footy codes building up steam. Uh, it was an appropriate time to release a report around the financial well-being, the numbers around both the NRL and the AFL. A, uh, an organisation called Ibis World um, looked at both codes over a couple of key data points. I was actually surprised there wasn't as much difference as I was kind of expecting. Do you guys? I, I flicked this around to you. Didn't didn't yeah. I? Did you have a bit of a look? Interesting stats. Yeah, I thought. The, I mean, the AFL are obviously the clear winners when it comes to game attendance, but the NRL, as far as TV ratings, that they seem to be clearly ahead, which I thought was quite interesting, particularly given how much the TV rights cost. Um, the broadcasters for the AFL every year. Yeah, but yeah, AFL's TV ratings declined 12.8% in 2018, which you'd think they'd be a little bit worried about. I think NRL um, stayed firm. Um, their current deals are similar. I think NRL has um, $2.5 billion over six years. Um, and AFL has, sorry, got the wrong way around. Yeah, a- yeah. AFL 2.5 over six and NRL 1.8 over five. Mm. But it's quite similar. Yeah, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. And yeah, John, you make the point about uh, ratings versus attendance. I mean, I think both codes recognise, again, play to their strengths, recognise the value of being at the game versus watching on telly. Obviously, the rugby code's more conducive to television with that sort of trench warfare, that back and forth, as opposed to the AFL, where you, you know, the, the ball carrier can kick it within a 360-degree uh, radius, 50, up to 50 metres. So. And bigger stadiums. Yeah, true, which hold more people and more passion about the... about. It. Well, and speaking of stadiums, it's interesting too, as this report pointed out, how much money has gone into new stadia for both codes. And you know, just leaving aside the controversy about the, the Sydney football stadium, which has probably been resolved now with the uh, New South Wales Liberal government returning to power... But you look at Perth, 
brand new 60,000 seat stadium over there and uh, indeed Western Sydney, um, which yeah. is opening sort of almost as we speak, now depending on when you yeah. listen to uh, to the show. looks like a great stadium too, from the pictures I've seen. It does. I could get out there. Might have to might have a little more than just a game excursion at Paramount Stadium. Yeah. Could be a good idea. You'd have to think that the holy grail for both of them, if they really want to grow in a meaningful way, is to crack it outside of Australia. Well, that's what AFLX is all about, playing AFL or what's, you know, passes for AFL in a rectangle rectangle stadium. Not sure how well it's going to go, but yes, exactly. Uh, you've got to think that league is really up against it, given the prevalence of rugby union around the world. I think they're both fairly confined to Australia. There's been a few fairly spectacular fails of that over the last 30 years or, or so. Or failures if you're over 30, Johnson. Um, also, they're, they're both big on the community distributions, as you'd imagine, uh, with the women's leagues of both sports taking up, taking up and taking off. Uh, and sponsors, the sponsorship sponsors have come on board in a big way. They've retained sponsors. Uh, there's a lot of money floating around the sport, so the, um, the sports are in, in rude good health. Um, now, what, are we, what have we got next? Oh, yes, name changes, name changes. Now... Tough one, this one. Which one do we start with? Do we start the light, the light one or the heavy one? Go with the heavy one. The heavy one. Yeah. So uh, everyone's across the incident in Christchurch a couple, a couple of weeks ago now as we talk, uh, with a lot of people lost their lives. Um, as a consequence of that, and uh, the Canterbury Crusaders, who are based in Christchurch, have contemplated changing their name. Now, we're, this is always just leaving aside the circumstances why any name change is always a point of contention brand changes and so forth, but it's an interesting reason why. And maybe not everyone understands that the, the Crusades was very much a Christian's dominating the world. And, and indeed, I think specifically... Yeah, I think I mean, images of the Crusades are often invoked by far right or anti-Islamic groups. And so, I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that the Crusaders are self-aware enough that they, they're opening this up to public debate. It's a highly sensitive and controversial issue, but... Really interesting. I mean, there are some parallels overseas. I think quite a few American sporting teams uh, have been through difficult times over the past five or ten years. Yeah, we've talked about the Redskins, Native Native yep. American um, names or logos. So yeah, Cle- it's a uh, tough Cleveland one. Indians as well. They both kept their names. What was that one? Sorry, mate. Cleveland Indians. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, they both decided to keep their names. So it'll be interesting to see what the reaction in Christchurch is and how strongly people there feel about the name Crusaders. I'm going to guess. Not particularly, and mm. I think given the circumstances, I think they're probably going to change their name just because the you know the connection between what happened and the name is just so strong. I mean, the Crusades weren't just about Christians taking over the world; they were specifically about Christians yeah. taking taking back the Holy Land from from yeah. the Muslims. Yeah. So you think they will change their name? I'm going to put money on that they will change their name. I think they'll keep it. Yeah. We'll see. I think they'll keep the the name, but maybe heavily modify some of the imagery. Um, and perhaps uh, leaving leaving that one behind, the Gabba. Very disappointed to hear that the Gabba, the iconic Gabba, is putting its naming its its, its stadium naming rights up for grabs. Although I gather they're keeping the name Gabba, so it will be the Company X Gabba. So I, I didn't even know the history of the Gabba name until you mentioned that to me ah, during the week. The Woolen Gabba. The Woolen Gabba. Yeah, it's not short for well, it's not it's not an acronym. It's the the Woolen Gabba. Uh, yeah. So anyway, a couple of contrasts in name changes there. We'll we'll see how. They pan out.
Uh, now, finally, on uh, the shootout, it's uh, on the from the "It's Not Sport, but We Like It" file. Gilly, I know this grabbed your attention big time, and we mentioned at the very top, lightsaber fencing is in. It's legit. It's been endorsed by the, the French Fencing Federation. <laughs> have decided to to designate lightsaber lightsaber fighting as an official sport or a, a official form of fencing, I guess, in France. And I was kind of intrigued when I heard about this, and. I, uh, having watched a few videos, I am a fan. The thing that I was really interested to see was what did the lightsabers actually look like? Were they going to be cheap Kmart plastic lightsabers or were they going to look like the real thing? And I'm glad to say mm. they look like the real thing. They don't have the sound effects yet, say, but they, well, what, the sound effects are coming. They don't have the sound effects, there's no yeah, point, surely. There's yeah, a, they've got a basic lightsaber, which is LED, and it kind of it looks really good, but the um, the ones that come next will have the, how does it go again? And I think they even aiming on maybe being able to create some sparks and maybe some sound effects as well. <laughs> That's hopeless, John. You watch. It'll be in the Olympics by 2036. And so it should be. Nah, rubbish. Red card, yellow card. Yes, red card, yellow card, where we enjoy poking fun at sports people uh, and what they've got up to off the field of play and in particular... Uh, some a few wags make uh, make this edition, I think. Uh, who wants to kick us off? Jono, you look like you're ready to go there. Ready and raring to go. Far um, away, mate. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned wags. Um, do you remember Jess Bradich? Perhaps no. if I if I say Jess Bradich Johnson, oh, that might ring a bell. Oh, yeah. So Mitchell's uh, wife. This is the wag who's falling out with her mother-in-law quite a few oh, years ago, caused yeah, poor old Mitch Johnson to have that terrible ashes to her. Um, she's been peddling her wares recently as a manufacturer of so-called designer handbags and other accessories. She promotes those accessories on her social media feed. I know you'd be a big fan of that, Rochi. Mm, but unfortunately, she had to recently make a very serious announcement to her, I think it's about 14,000 Instagram followers. A few more than me. That her label is on the brink of collapse. She's not going to produce an autumn-winter collection due to significant dives in sales. In fact, in recent months, there's been numerous times that she's had to put stock on a fire sale in attempts to clear it, <laughs> down from $79 to as low as $9 dear for a handbag. Dear, oh dear. Tough but times. What, uh, what she said was she slammed, this, this is outrageous, oh, yeah, she slammed go. the social media generation for, oh. the creation of a so, for the creation of a throwaway culture. Yeah. She says, Which she pandered to while the business well, is going well. There's some irony. There's some irony here. <laughs> now, it's like I want new, new, new all the time. There's so much in your face on social media. You're constantly getting hammered with new stuff. Stuff and for next to nothing, it's kind of like a throwaway society now. They want it for one outfit, but they don't want to wear it again. Mm. It's that Kmart mentality. It's a $5 piece, but it doesn't last. What you get from a designer is unique and original, made with blood, sweat, and tears, and it's really special. This is a woman who designs her handbags and sends them to China to get manufactured. <laughs> but anyway, she's um, not happy with the Brilliant. social media generation. She's bite, biting the hand that feeds her, that's for sure. I wonder what the Barmy Army, the Barmy Army would have a song for that. Oh, Mitchell Johnson, something about your wife. They would. Uh, dangerous territory. Um, yellow. I think yellow. Card. Yeah, yeah for, the, for the moan more than anything else. Yeah, the whinge. The whinge. Uh, Gilly, fire away. So I've got a red card, yellow card nomination about a sports stadium, which mm. which I think may be a first. But you, you may have heard that uh, Tottenham Hotspur recently officially played their first game mm. on their new state-of-the-art Spurs stadium, which is probably the most 
technologically advanced stadium on the planet. They invested $1.8 billion. It has a super fantastic um, networking solution. So you'll always get wireless and you'll never not have a signal in the new Spurs stadium, which is obviously very important to the, to, the, to, the, to the modern punter. <laughs> so they've really thought about every single small, tiny detail um, related to the stadium, except for one thing. And that was the corner flags. They only have a foot of space around the corner flags, <laughs> which is, when you think about it, is very, like 33 centimetres, right? So very little space well, for, a, for well, a corner taker to... As in for his run-up. Yeah, for his run-up. Run and, right. and if you look at the photo, it's, it's not that after a foot, it just kind of falls Drops dramatically away. into a drain very steeply. So you... So have uh, they played a, a game there? They have. I haven't seen how the, how how the, the corner, how the corner taking um, went, but I, I'm going to nominate them for a yellow card. A one-step entire runner. stadium getting a red card, yellow card nomination. I think it's a yellow card. Could be a first. Mm. Yeah, I'll go with yellow. Um, look, I've been on the anti-vaccination hobby horse lately. Um, we, we mentioned Bryce Cartwright's wife, I think, last show. Police report she's been... Her social media use has been restricted by the, the platforms themselves. So I'm glad to, f- f- to see they've found something important enough to intervene on. Um, in the intervening time, Taylor Winterstein, uh, uh, who's the wife of Frank, NRL player. What is it about NRL players and their wives? Um, she hasn't just been promoting anti-vaccination ideas. She has been selling tickets for $200 for people to come and listen to her talk me. and espouse her views. Uh, I tell you what, when I come back in the next life, I want to be a wag. And the, the marketing and the business opportunities are, are endless, and I don't think they've been fully explored. Um, look, just to get off that, that hobby horse, another rugby league wag has stepped in, defrauding her employer. So the wife of former St. George Illawarra winger, Reese Simmons, uh, she has been accused of misappropriating hundreds of thousands of dollars from a childcare centre on the New South Wales South Coast where she worked. Uh, facing a number of dishonesty charges, and after a lengthy police investigation into allegations, she swiped over three hundred and thirty grand from a childcare centre over f- over five years. Overpaid herself wages and annual leave. Um, she bought dozens of personal items, including Botox, right, mm. laser hair removal, no uh, handbags from Jess Bradage. Uh, not that's uh, on the cr- on the uh, the crime sheet. What do you call right. it? The rap sheet. Thank you. Uh, holiday combination lounge, Lorna Jane exercise gear, and dance lessons for the kiddies. <laughs> Yes, on and on. You're so not a wag, Rachel. You've got she, no chance. Away. <laughs> she pleaded not guilty, and as they say, the case continues. <laughs> <laughs> so I think maybe we should have asked Jack this. Would it be um, incautious of us to to nominate her for a red card before the judge has actually had an opportunity innocent, to and innocent a jury? until proven guilty? I think. Yeah, yeah. I think we reserve judgment. So, so, no, that's the expression. <laughs> it's, it's terrific. Wow, that's the first time. Is it that first time we've had a nomination? We've had a, haven't actually come down hard enough to issue a car. We probably should have before, but, you know, should, never should, too late to change. Should have talked about that earlier. Well, there you go. Uh, well, look, that, uh, that about wraps up the show. It just leaves me with a simple task to say, see you later, David Gill. Thanks very much. Uh, Jono, goodbye to you too. See you, Richie. And it's goodbye from me, Paul Roach. Thank you very much for your company. Don't forget, follow us on Twitter at MTJAG Grandstand. Subscribe to the show on, on iTunes. Until next time, it's bye for now. <laughs>